Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favourite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. My guest is the renowned potter, designer and judge on television's The Great Pottery Throwdown and former punk, Keith Brimer-Jones. Keith's choice of book is Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. It was first published in 1719 and many believe it's the first English novel, although it was actually based on the life of a real-life castaway called Alexander Selkirk. There are lots of versions for children, including the one that Keith read, of course, uh, which was, I discovered only a slightly shorter version of the adult one. Keith Bremer-Jones, thank you so much for sitting there. In actually, where are you? What is that I'm, behind I'm actually you? in my studio in Whitstable. Oh. Look, you can see. There, look, we've got a punch bag and we've got the mirror ball. And we've oh, got... this is perfectly equipped. So so it's, it's quite a nice place. So I have the studio in Whitstable um, and then I have a studio also in China, believe it or not. Do you? Yeah, yeah. So the clue's in the name, China, as in China. <laughs> And uh, so I, I go over there when, when pandemic allows and um, develop and design stuff over there as well. Now, thank you for choosing a book. Did you choose this book instantly, the minute we asked you what was your favourite book as a child? Do you know what? I did uh, purely because of the images, the pictures. I remember the pictures and I remember the, 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 the pages. I mean, it was an old book when I was a child, let's face it. Um, and I think I was given it by my, my grandma, believe it or not, to, to, to have a read when I was probably about seven or eight. And of course, I picked it up. And the first thing I looked at was the images. Um, and I still and I am still like that now. I mean, you know, um, I, I suffer from dyslexia anyway. Yes. Um, so reading this book <laughs> was somewhat of a challenge. Well, the book, the book is Robinson Crusoe yeah. by Daniel Defoe, yeah. illustrated. And I think his name should be pretty much as large as, as Daniel's um, by F.G. Mawson. And the illustrations yeah. are phenomenal aren't they starting with They're the very lovely. front page and i have the same copy as you published in 1949 yeah. is yours on that rather stiff wartime paper it is i know yeah. it's lovely and you can't you know flick what? through it can you no you can't no you can't flick through it no it's 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 a task in itself turning the page it um, is which for me is quite nice because i like <laughs> when i'm reading i like to feel like i'm getting somewhere and and it's an event turning the page over to be honest um i, I mean yeah obviously uh, i read quite a bit now not so much fiction or novels i read documents and design briefs um i've never been a, a massive massive reader but it it has been um a very kind of evocative uh, um process actually you asking me to to think about the book of my childhood and robinson crusoe and even the front cover is fairly kind of dubious 
Um, you know, well, I think we just have, we just have to have. Unfortunately, as this is a recording, but above both of our heads is a, an illuminated sign going. This is not PC, okay? No, because it's not. It's but not. On the other hand, it you know, as to, in terms of what's deemed a classic, in fact, yeah, um, Robinson Crusoe is definitely up there. It's one of the first ones people mention. Um, and I thought I knew the story until I came to this copy, and then I realised that first of all, I think my a recollection of it is based very much on a, on a 70s children's TV series, which I can sing the theme tune, should it be required, which I only <laughs> remember two characters in. I think there were more. Yes. But in my mind, it was about Robinson Crusoe and then Man Friday. But there, there are lots more people than that, are there not? Yeah, I mean, the book is quite complex in the storyline, in the kind of storyline, if you like, and all the different characters within the book. I mean, let's face it, Robinson Crusoe, he went, he got around a bit, didn't he? Let's... He did get around a bit. He did get around a bit, yes, and not always with the best of intentions. No. <laughs> PC-wise. Um, yes, the way he made his money was a bit dubious. Um, but to take you back to that little boy who's... Gra- did she write inside the book, by the way? Because this copy has, has an inscription in the yeah, front. Yes. Which sadly has yes. been scored out by a bookseller, which is a shame. But um, but also, um, I was just finishing off the book and I turned a page and a load of pressed leaves fell out of the book. It's amazing. I've still got them in the book. I'm going to keep them in the the book and it was wonderful because i thought oh maybe they're from the island <laughs> do you like... know what fell out of the copy we have oh go on old football cards oh, now i wow. will say these names as though they are you know absolutely <laughs> familiar to me paul reaney oh yes okay uh bertie Vogt. right so i think we're talking world cup time and carlos alberta wow fantastic um, they are really pin-up shots and they are absolutely absolutely amazing that they fell out of this book marked page 199 <laughs> and also and also a, a stamp a malawian stamp wow for for sixpence fantastic um, so, you know all sorts of stories there a book is so evocative isn't it i mean as, as we both described you know the, the editions of this this book that we've got here that you know you turn the pages and it's that that sort of oxidization of the pages over years they are they are they they have a history um uh, and and we all have history and you know the gnarled up bits of you know the corners of the paper i i i do i do love a book it let's face it a book is a design classic and i don't think we'll ever get rid of them hopefully hopefully and i say that as not really an avid reader but they are amazing and an incredibly important part of anyone's culture well without wishing to sound too winsome then do you think that something in in what the book holds, in its very DNA, in the smell and the look of it and the feel of it, is that connected with the loss of childhood for you? Yes, yeah, I, I would, I would say that. You know, um, I, I must admit, the minute I opened the book, the first page, it took me back. It literally did take me back, and 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 actually, in some ways, uh, it took me back to remembering the struggle it was to read. And, and all the things that that entailed. Um, but it also took me back to, yeah, it's, it's incredible, really. It took me back to remembering my grandparents. It took me back to remembering uh, their garden in, in, uh, in Totteridge, uh, which was wonderful, a wonderful big garden that they had. And in the summer, they'd have the, the old deck chairs out with, the, with the, the canopies over them. You know, real sort of it, it really evocative feelings. And and it all really came just from opening the page of this book, regardless of the contents of the book, which is quite amazing in itself. 
The illustrations are extraordinary, aren't they? They're brilliant. Do you have a favourite one? I, I think that the, my favourite picture in the book is a coloured illustration, and it's Robinson Crusoe in, in all his in all his glory. He's kind of he's not surviving anymore. He's actually thriving. You know, he's made an umbrella out of, you know, uh, animal skin and he's got his gun and he's got his, his companion, his parrot there. And it's great because he seems to be quite content and happy with his lot. It's homely almost. I know, it, it is. Quite- yeah, it and is. I love it. I love it. And uh, I'd, I could see myself like that, really, on a desert island, even to this day. Have you found the one um, on my book? It's opposite page 64. And Robinson Crusoe... <laughs> Obviously, the, the, the age is showing, or the years on the island are showing a bit because he's now got a lovely white beard. He's got a little sort of pixie right. hat on, but he's also holding a parasol. So he really hasn't left his Englishness very That's right, far yeah. behind, has he? He's not, he's not weathered sufficiently no, to no. give up the parasol. He, yeah, he doesn't want to lose his skin tone. You know, he's just like, <laughs> he, he's, he's obviously still sort of conscious about his appearance, obviously protecting himself from the sun, which is re- Rather good, yeah. It's very sweet, actually. I mean, that that surprised me is that it, there's some of the pictures, even even the sort of boats that sail, you know, when they're besieged by waves. It, it's not daunting somehow. It does look adventurous. Predominantly, it's a kind of a, a book of survival as well as anything else. But you don't feel like Robinson Crusoe is actually surviving. He's going about his daily business. The circumstances that he finds himself in are almost, you know, well, I'm on this island, so I need to make the best of it, really. If it were written today, I think there would be far more about, you know, the survival of of actually having to live on a desert island and not having, you know, the right food to eat and what, how are you going to survive? Whereas with Robinson Crusoe, he's obviously going around killing things and eating things, and he has enough provisions uh, for, for for the time being. He even gets to sow barley and um, and grow barley on the on the island. Fantastic! I mean, sounds like a farm in Wales, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and also it, it sounds like we all want to be there a bit yeah, because what we he's do. successfully done, without necessarily knowing, is that he's actually created a little England. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If you if you were dyslexic, quite frankly, you were deemed as thick. <laughs> but uh, obviously, as it's transpired, and I could quite honestly say now that if it hadn't have been for dyslexia, I wouldn't be doing the job I'm doing. To be quite honest, um, dyslexic people have uh, just a different way of viewing the world. So, Janet, if you're ever moving house and you want me to load your van, just bring me along. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm just a dab hand at Tetris and fixing boxes into spaces. Yeah. That's it. My, my son, who was a reluctant reader and also reads very slowly now. I mean, he's yeah. now 33. But he also has massive space adapting skills like that. You know, well, well, give quite him frank- the boxes, yeah. he, will, he will create space. Extraordinary. Well, quite frankly, most architects are dyslexic. Norman Foster is severely dyslexic. And when one has dyslexia, one has a much better affinity of shape, form and volume. Um, that it, that's just that just comes to the fore more than the textual information that you get from words. But when yeah. you were a child, yeah. living in a world surrounded by reading, as we yeah. know, did you feel out of sorts with the world as you were getting older or did you just adapt because that was your normal? 
No, I, I did. I, I must admit, I did feel out of sorts uh, a, a bit because it was it, through education. It was always being impressed upon me that actually, you know, I was a bit of a failure. And it wasn't until I picked up a lump of clay in the first year of secondary school. I had a very inspiring teacher. We all remember an inspiring teacher. And um, he gave me a lump of clay and said, do something with that. I duly did. I made something that he deemed sort of unusual and and, and good. Uh, then uh, sort of extolled some compliments upon me. Um, I'm talking in the t- in the realms of Robinson Absolutely, Crusoe. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, we've um, both channeled it. Yeah, we've both channeled it. And uh, and it was the to be perfectly honest, it was the first time anyone at school had ever said anything nice uh, about whatever I'd done. And I thought, right, well, I'll keep on this. And I literally took to it the moment I touched the clay. Without sounding too poetic, it was literally an epiphany moment for me. What, what was his name and what did you make? Uh, Mr. Mortman and I made an owl. I made a, a pottery owl. Uh, so I made a, a simple pinch pot and then I made another one and I stuck the two together to sort of produce a sphere. And then I, I did this kind of technique for the feathers. On the, <laughs> I'm 11, by the way, at this time. And I made this technique with a sort of a tool uh, of some feathers. And Mr. Mortman was walking around the room in amongst the other the other kids that were having a massive clay fight at the time, um, and said, oh, Keith, that looks rather wonderful what you've done there. That's really interesting. Basically, every lunch hour after school, um, I was in the pottery room, the art department, and I was the only one, basically, that was doing pottery at this time, to the point where, this is brilliant, in the 80s, Mr. Mortman, picture the scene we're in the we're in the, in the in the art room at lunch hour just me and him and i'm pottering around and he 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 pipes up and he says right now Keith, i'm just going to the staff room for lunch now if you fix that kill make sure you switch it off before you do it i mean brilliant you wouldn't get away with that now but um and i used to the whole I used scene to... wouldn't happen now you would not have a kid <laughs> spending their lunch hour like that would yeah, you alone just, with another it... teacher well, no yeah, and also just being allowed inside you know? it was fantastic and i you know i used to fix the kilns at the school um not that uh, probably the head didn't know that but yeah but but to the point where when i reached um um uh, my sort of A-level sort of stage, why I stayed on, or God knows why, but I did stay on and I did A-level pottery. But I used to bunk off and go to the V&A in, in the ceramics department, which is quite fantastic, drawing pots and reading about pots, actually. But yeah, I, I absolutely adored it. Yeah, it was amazing. Do you still get that same tingle of excitement when you go to the V&A now? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know whether you know, but I get quite emotional around pots. It has been noted. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yes, I do. I, I, I absolutely love it. I mean, as and when time allows these days, but, but um, I do love it. It's, it's, it's one of those kind of museums, and I think they should all be like this, where you can genuinely physically get lost in it. And I used to love that. I used to love it because whatever corner you turned, there was something incredible to look at. And it just really fired my imagination. It was brilliant. And from that, it sparked off my love of, of clay and all things pottery. Yeah, incredible. And do, do 11-year-olds get the chance to do pottery much now at school? No, they don't. And, it's, and actually, it, without going on a massive rant, Please um, do. I would say it's tantamount to criminal because obviously – some of us use the left side of the brain and some of us use the right side of the brain. And if you're not 
allowing children to have these opportunities at an early stage in their education, you're you're really just really stopping them from seeing the the world and 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 really sort of encouraging other opportunities that that they may take to. And uh, creative subjects aren't for everyone, but for maybe half the population, they are. And you know. This country, amongst many other countries, have built been built on creativity of people's dexterity and cognitive endeavours with their hands. To deny that to 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 children at an early age is, quite frankly, stupid. So, yeah, I I, I feel very very strongly that that creative subjects in school should be further up the up the curriculum scale. Really, yeah, yeah. Because when when you talk about that moment at eleven, I can see you are both that boy and you now and yeah. obviously the two are you know two halves are the same but it's amazing how rapidly you get back to the excitement of that moment yeah ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In your home, given that you weren't a reader by default, was was that left aside? Was it frowned on or did you get constant encouragement or was it just moved away from? No, funnily enough, um, no, I, I, my mother realised, uh, uh, you know, when I was quite young that, I, you know, I obviously had problems reading, um, you know, with and uh, dyslexia. I mean, she was a teacher, so she knew this. And and I had uh, I had extra lessons out of school, reading lessons and and uh, and all that kind of thing. And uh, and it was really really helpful. But my mother was never sort of pressed me or or um, you know pressured me into into having to be academic. She knew that I was more on the creative spectrum rather than the academic. And fortunately for me. Both my uh, parents were very sort of liberal in that way of thinking. And, and lo and behold, here I am making pots. Was she a domestic science teacher? Was that right? She was. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So did the whole house just smell of cake all the time? Oh, my God. On a Friday afternoon, if you walked into the house, there were literally about 14, 15 cakes on the go. And when I say cakes, I mean palatial cakes they she was very old school so there was lots of icing lots of piping going on they were incredible so yeah she was a very very good cook yeah absolutely amazing because this, this book the copy we we, we both have i don't know if yours does mine, mine yeah. smells of old bookshops which is actually i think one of those scents they now put into candles you know for lifestyle choices <laughs> yeah um 
You, I love you it. do a candle range and you could incorporate old we, book. We did, we did, we did do a candle range. In fact, I'm thinking of bringing it back actually, funnily you enough. Bring it back. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. An old book range. Yeah. Why you not? Would. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe yours could be sort of mixed in slightly with cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, God, old books and cake. What yeah. more do you want in life? Well, maybe alcohol. <laughs> Being the third son of the family and not bred to any trade, my head began to be filled very early with rambling thoughts. My father, who was very aged, had given me a competent share of learning as far as house education and the country free school generally goes and designed me for the law. But I would be satisfied with nothing but going to sea and this led me so strongly against the will, nay the commands of my father and against all the pleas of my mother and other friends that there seemed to be something fatal in that urge of mine which led directly to the life of adventure which was to befall me. So going back going back to Robinson Crusoe, I can't think I've read every single word in here because um, Daniel Defoe's writing style um, is best described as dense, is it not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the yes. first sentence um, takes up quite a lot of time. He He's very fond of a semicolon, not much uh, <laughs> punctuation apart from that, certainly very few full stops. Yeah. And underneath all this, underneath this theme of Robinson Crusoe, who has a lot of adventures before he even meets Man Friday, which, like I said, to me anyway, is the famous bit of the book. Yeah. You know, he's he's shipwrecked quite a lot. He has um, altercations with people. He's actually run away from a middle-class family, hasn't he? He has, um, yes. Was it read to you or did you read it? No, I did actually read it. And some of the chapters were read to me uh, in bed, as, you know, I think my father read to me in bed. Yeah, and and for me... Being read to was incredible because it just allowed me to really get my imagination flowing. And even to this day, I love a wilderness. You know, if I were to do Desert Island Discs, I'd be absolutely fine. I might miss Marge, but um, uh, I would be absolutely fine. I say I might miss. No, I would miss Marge. So I think, I yeah, they can, let me we, can do, we can edit that. out. We can edit out that conditional there. Yeah, but but I no, but just, I'd miss Marge would be yeah. <laughs> But 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 then you've got this story going on. You've got these amazing pictures. So were you him in the book? Were you Robinson or did you find someone else to be? No, I, I probably was Robinson. Yeah, without the racist overtones and the, the <laughs> imperial the, the imperial sort of yeah overview of other people. Yeah. Yeah, that that is extraordinary. I was that person. I was that person making camps and making do, um, you know, surviving on an island and um you know, I remember in my teens, we used to go to, we go to Wales quite a lot in my teens. And I'd often sort of think about, you know, just walking off into the mountains and, and surviving with just a penknife. And I'm, I'm pretty sure subconsciously it's come from a book like this, really, to fire up that imagination. Yeah, because it is full of spirit, isn't it, this book? I mean, it it's is full, full of, of spirit. Full of spirit and, and actually analyzes the need for human connection. His, his deprivation makes him very, very keen, actually, on trying to understand who he is, which he's almost ready to know before he meets someone else. Yes. No, that's true. And and in some some ways, I, you know, reading the book, it, it does sound a bit like a ship's log. Some of it's yes. very factual. And then I yes. did this and then I did that. And actually, quite a lot of the book later in the book, it gets quite gory. Um, I shot at him. He was dead. The other one wasn't quite as dead, you know. Yeah, because actually that Man Friday only 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 merges into the story really because everybody else he was with was shot. 
And so, yeah. you know, also, yes. have you read, you know, there's a sequel to this. Have you read it? No, I haven't read the sequel. No, I'm, I, uh, in fact, I'm intrigued now. I'm, I might actually do oh, that. I, yeah. In that case, I won't say what I was going to say, because it's a bit of a spoiler about what happens to Man Friday in the sequel. Oh, okay. Oh, Just a okay. little row of dots there, folks. Um, <laughs> But I think also what you can get from it is a kind of ambition to experience difference, isn't it? I mean, you've said about being the wilderness, but also internally, you know, he, he's, he's very conscious of the fact that there's nobody to analyse what he's doing. You know, he just he is he is creating his world very definitely. It's incredible what a book at a certain age can do to you uh, subconsciously or maybe consciously but I'm sure it's instilled that thing I love traveling and I love going around the world and seeing different cultures I find myself going to China on a regular basis where the culture couldn't be more different you literally couldn't walk down the equivalent of a Chinese high street look into a shop window see stuff on the shelf but still have no idea what they're selling you know, and I, I, I kind of love that um, because it just fascinates me. And, and obviously, you know, somewhere like China, the text is even different. So you're not even going to see your restaurant name or, or your bar name to, to give you a reference point. And that's what I love about this book. Although he is very English, he obviously, I get the, the fact that he seems to think that being an Englishman is probably the best thing you can be in the world. Um, and he observes everyone from a kind of a, a, a sort of hierarchical kind of uh, observation. But he doesn't go too far as to say he, he's not derogatory about the culture. It's just different. I mean, there's a lot of words of savages in there, and, yes. you know. I'm trying to convert him into being a Christian. There is, there is definitely an overlay. I mean, he reads the Bible, doesn't he? You know, there's an overlay of, of Christianity through it. Is that something you share? No, <laughs> no, it's not. No, it, it's not. Um, I've never been that religious, um, although I respect people who are. We all need something to believe in and to have faith in. Um, it's just not my thing. Uh, and, it, and obviously reading this at 7, 8, 9, Religion certainly wasn't uh, wasn't something that was really pr- prominent in my life anyway. Yeah, for some children, I guess it is a sort of background noise of Sunday school or church attendance or whatever, so that would have felt familiar. Yeah, I mean, if, funnily enough, my, my mother often used to say, oh, no, they're a Christian with a large C. <laughs> that was always her thing, uh, because her, her father actually was um, a Methodist minister, the Welsh chapel. Actually, the Charing Cross Chapel, which then became the Limelight Club, which you and I can probably remember. The Limelight Club was a Welsh Methodist church where my mother actually met my father back in the day. Yeah, who knew? Um, And there I am going in the 80s as a new romantic. Uh, It's a totally different story, but there you go. What happened to the owl, by the way, your first piece? Well, I'm hoping I've still got it somewhere in storage because my mother used to keep it by her chair in the front room for years and years and years. It was always on the cabinet by her chair. I'm hoping that my father didn't throw it away when my mother died. And I think I've still got it in storage somewhere. Oh, so I'm oh I do hope there. so. Gosh, I really do. Just like books, for me, making a bit of pottery as a child and keeping that as a keepsake again, is incredibly evocative when you, when you come across it in later life. It, it is one of those particular inanimate objects that can instill so much emotion in it. And, and I think the older that the book 
or the older that 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 object is, the more the more meaning it has in some ways to the owner. Well, there's something, especially yeah. things you make as a child, because I, I I never actually I really never got the chance to do pottery. Who knows? But um, I did I did make a lot of things. I had a um, a doll that I made clothes for. We travelled around quite a bit when yeah. I was a kid, so uh, that was my parents' reason slash excuse for not having the bigger items. But everything I really liked was small. I loved dolls' houses, and I loved. And when I look now at the things that have survived, these little tiny dresses and tiny shoes I made for equally very very small dolls. I'm doing that. They're about two inches high. You know, I look at it now and I think I can't remember the circumstances of making that, but somehow I can remember how brilliant it was to have the opportunity to do it. Something about that, that my time was my own for that moment. Well, that's it with any kind of creative uh, endeavour, to be perfectly honest with you. You don't actually have to be good at making things. It's that process and it's that psychological process that you go through uh, and you do lose yourself, as do you when you read a book. It's you and the book and you, you, it's your imagination. And it's very, very similar to when I'm on the wheel. You know, I'm throwing on the wheel. It's my own time. And I do. I lose myself in the process of creating something. It's really, I think it's really, really important for people to actually value that. Um, and on, on Pottery Throwdown, on, the, on the, the very first one, when you felt that emotional response to what someone was doing, was there a, a millisecond where you thought, maybe I shouldn't let people see me cry? Or was it just instant and uncontrollable and right? No, it, it was inst- it was completely instant. In fact, it's a quite a sort of fairly amusing story. So basically, the first ten minutes of the first episode of the first series of the Pottery Throwdown, we're in the we're in the, obviously the studio room, and all pandemonium's breaking loose because they're having to get their pots in the drying room, and that's the jeopardy, and this, that, and the other. And Raker, one of the potters at the time, was getting is a bit in trouble. Really, she wasn't going to get her pots in the drying room, and it was all. And I could hear from the monitor room the director going, "Quick, get some cameras on Raker. She's in trouble." This, that, and the other, and then I. I was getting really emotional at the whole kind of scenario and I start, come on, Rekha, and I start crying and I can hear the director going, my God, one of the judges is crying. This is bloody TV gold. Brilliant. And 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 from then on, I just, I mean, you know, look, I, I travel halfway across the world to China and I'll be in a showroom and they'll show me a, a sample of something that I've designed and I will start crying if it's a really good sample and they they are quite miffed by that but I, I do it's just it's just it I, it's just triggers they're miffed because they don't understand that response they don't understand why I'm crying at the at the piece of ceramic that they presented to me and my business partner at the time has to say don't worry if he's crying it's, it's a good, good thing yeah. It's, if he's crying, it's a good thing. Don't worry. It is really a yeah. good thing. Yeah. Because obviously there's, there's to me, such a, a correlation between the way you respond to things as a child, which is honest. You know, you're not worried necessarily about what your peer group, I mean, you want to be in a gang, but even so, your responses, you know, you're not, you're not doing it for competitive approval. And yet, and yet, when, when you grow up, you're supposed to lose that a bit, you're, or at least... you. Uh, unwittingly, you lose it, force of circumstance, and you're supposed to then get in that stream of, of kind of keeping up, competing, seeing who's doing what. Grown upness. Growing upness, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Your, your response seems to me primal in all the best ways, you know, in, in the way that we absolutely should respond to things. And, and yet we're kind of encouraged to feel a bit embarrassed about it. 
you, you know, if you don't allow children to express themselves creatively, uh, and I don't mean run around a supermarket, you know, shouting, I want this, mum, and I want that. I mean, express themselves creatively in a constructive environment then you are dumbing down their senses. And, and you know, as you quite rightly just described, as we grow older, that gets drummed out of us as, as though that's not really the right thing to do. And that's not right. That's really not right. You know, the reason why I get so emotional, especially on the show, is because I have someone in front of me. I'll start crying now. I have someone in front of me that has created something that's really quite personal to them under duress, let's face it, on a television program, and they are giving all their all to me in this item that's on the judging bench, and we are communicating through what they've created. And if they've done a really, really wonderful job at that, I can't help but get overjoyed. I, I literally can't. No, neither should you. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, and I, it's a very privileged position to be on. I must say, it's, it's, uh, it really is. Yeah. A lot of the work you do now as a potter is in, is concerned with words. They're all over yeah. what you do. So have you made friends with them at last? Well, I have. I have. Of course I have. And and, and it's the, the irony is that the biggest range that I do is called the word yes. range, you know, the Keith Brimer-Jones word range. And the reason for that is because, you know, again, I suppose tapping into that early childhood, the, the, the way I look at words, first and foremost, is the shape of the words. One of the words that I love the most from aesthetic reasons is the word hot. <laughs> I just like it. I like the word hot, the shape of it, that the H and then the O in the middle centralizes the whole kind of format of the word. And and so therefore I thought, well, I'll put that on a mug. I mean, you know, obviously it's conducive uh, related to, you know, ironically to, to, to putting on a mug. Word hot, hot coffee, hot tea. And that's how the word range came about. So it, it is quite amazing because it, it was the aesthetic look of words that got me doing the word range. So, you know, even even if one struggles with something in life, you can find a positivity out of that. Uh, one of my favourite quotes of all time is, a pessimist's problem is an optimist's opportunity. And I do live my life by that phrase, really. That is, that is a brilliant place to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Keith Brimer-Jones. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 